If you have your Bible with you this morning, please turn it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In a short amount of time, we will be reading verses 13 through 16 in that chapter. So far in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what we've had is an emphasis on Paul's ministry. Uh, the first part of that chapter was focused on what Paul did, about who he was, about how he did it, and then last week we talked about why he worked, why he lived the way he lived, being formed and fashioned by the gospel. And now we turn not to Paul's ministry, but to those who received that ministry in the Thessalonians. The question that sits before us as we read these verses is why did the Thessalonians hang on to the gospel? In the midst of such persecution, in the midst of such turmoil, What was it about the Thessalonians that allowed them to hang on to the gospel? Now, certainly there are a couple of ways that we can answer this. And Paul is capable of answering this from the perspective of God and saying, well, God has changed their hearts. God has made them anew. God has worked in them to make them different. And certainly God is hanging on to them and holding on to them. And so because of that, because of the work of God in them, they They hang on and they persevere through trials and persecutions. While this is true, this isn't always the way that we need to understand how God is working. It's not enough just to say that God works this way, but to see what God's working in this way actually does in the lives of believers. So we can view it from the perspective of God, but we also need to have a perspective of the humans on which God is working. So... If they did hold on to the faith, if they did persevere through their trials, what were the human reasons? What did they do? Even if it was God working in them to do that, what did they do that allowed them to persevere through such harsh times? Perhaps in older congregations, more mature believers are there to strengthen and to fortify younger believers so that in times of persecution, the younger believers can look to the older believers and see how they should walk in the Lord and and to have an example of maintaining the faith even through difficult times. Certainly in older congregations that is possible, but this is not an older congregation. This is an incredibly young congregation. This is a month old, and yet hanging on indeed they are. Perhaps it's some sort of worldly affiliation with one another. After all, we read in the book of Acts that there were many God-fearers who came to believe here. Those God-fearers would have been sort of in between two worlds. They wouldn't have been Jewish believers. They wouldn't have been readily accepted as Jewish believers. But neither were they Gentile worshipers. They didn't worship the idols of their fellow countrymen around them. So they would have been sort of in between two worlds. Perhaps they just kind of banded together and got themselves through. And perhaps these leading women who also came in lent some worldly support and kept these believers together as they went through these storms. That could have been true. But it's important that Paul doesn't give us these answers. The answer that Paul gives us is very straightforward. They were able to maintain their Christian identity, their faith, and their life because they held on to the word of God as the word of God and not as the word of men. Let us read 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, 
the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. This is the inerrant and infallible and trustworthy word of our God. Paul begins this section by saying that they thank God constantly. Paul, Timothy, Silvanus, thank God constantly, continuously, without ceasing for this. And it is something to note, even as we must go on to other other items. We're kind of whizzing down the highway and noticing this on the side of the road, but it's worth noticing that he not only thanks them, and he is constantly before God thanking them for their faith, thanking God for their faith, but he also makes that known to them. It is important that we do the same for our brothers and sisters, that we are thanking God for the faith that we see in others, and we are allowing them to know that we recognize their faith, even in the midst of difficult circumstances and trials, to simply encourage them. But Paul thanks for something particular. He says that when you received the word of God, most major translations treat it as though it's the word of God here. They do that primarily because later in the same verse, we have this mentioning of the word of God. You received it as the word of God because it is the word of God. So it makes good sense. But I don't think that that's actually a good translation of it. It should probably be something of our report. You have received our report concerning God. That is that when Paul came to the Thessalonians, when Paul spoke to them, When he brought the gospel to them, this gospel, this word, the report that they were going to make of what Jesus has come and done and did, it was not primarily about the Thessalonians, but it was primarily about God. He says that the report that we brought to you was about God. It concerned God. Friends, we need to understand that it is primarily always in the gospel about God and not about us. The center of the gospel is God, not us. And we will always twist the message of the gospel. We may even miss it entirely when we misunderstand this. When we are concerned and we think that we are the center of the gospel, that the gospel is given for us and about us. It is indeed given for us, but it is not about us. We need to understand that this is really easy to do. And it's really easy to make ourselves the center of the gospel because of the great blessings that the gospel affords to believers. We have a lifetime's worth of blessing, an eternity worth of blessing in the gospel. The gospel is nothing less than the fact that Jesus Christ has come to give us eternal life, who deserved damnation. We deserved to be cut off eternally from God because of our sin. Yet Jesus, in his great mercy, in his great love, in his grace, has given us eternal life instead. He has taken on our punishment, and he has given us nothing but eternal life as a gift. And because that is, of all things, of all things, the richest and greatest blessing that we can understand, it's easy to think that because of the blessings that accrue from this, that the gospel is really centered on us. But what Paul is saying is when we came 
to the Thessalonians. Just as, as we might come to you and proclaim that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you to believe in, you to have eternal life in. He says, when we came, our preaching was concerning God. It was telling you not about what comes for you, but about what Jesus is and does and did in the gospel and in the cross. It is about how God was merciful. It is about how God is gracious. It is about how God is beautiful and good and summing up all things in Jesus Christ, how he is the maker, the creator, the redeemer. He is all in all. That is what Paul came and preached. And yes, it accrues benefits for the Thessalonians, but it was not centered on them. Therefore, Paul says, this is not man's message. It's not a human message. We like, Americans do anyway, our moral and religious speech in sort of TED Talk form. We like suggestions. We like choices. It's like a nice, large, COVID-free religious buffet that you can go to. And you can pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You can have some Eastern meditation with a little bit of Islamic justice and just a, a tad bit of secular enlightenment and, and you can make yourself a religion out of that. You can have the pieces of bits that you want. You can make them fit for you. You're told, quite honestly by the culture, to believe what you need or you want to believe. Believe that the things that are going to help you the most in life. Believe in the things that are going to get you through the day. If that's a little bit of self-help, and by all means, grab a little bit of self-help. That's a little bit of forgiveness. Even if it's just for you and not for others, you might as well grab it while you can. Throw in a sprinkling of religiosity or spirituality simply to top it off. This kind of thinking, frankly, is an offshoot of always thinking that the gospel is about you. If it's about you, then the gospel must always be something that helps you. It must always be something that is recognizable as good for you. If it is about you, if it circles around you, then you get to choose what the help of the gospel looks like. You get to choose what the cross means to you. In essence, it means that you are the center and that God then circles around and becomes who you want him to be. But Paul counters that this is not the kind of preaching that they heard. The Thessalonians would have heard plenty of TED Talk-like ideas in the philosophers and the theologians of their day. They would have come through, many of them, preaching different philosophies, preaching different sort of gods and what those gods can give to you, different ways of approaching life. They would have heard many of these. But when they heard the preaching of Paul, they recognized it as something fundamentally different than those. This wasn't something that they could pick up and choose or reject and, and be okay and pick parts of if they wanted to. Instead, they recognized that what they received was the word of God. This is easiest to be taken as a possessive. It is God's word. As it's God's word and Paul brings it to them, it is a word from God. It is a word that comes from God. It is his word. When you see it that way, when you truly understand that the gospel is God's word, that the scriptures are God's word, it becomes very difficult to think that it's something that is just being suggested to you. As though you can pick and choose what you want. As though you can try on this and you can taste a little bit of that. And, and you can then decide what is true for you or decide what is helpful or good or right for you. If it is God's word, then it is a declaration of what is true and what is right. And you are to bend your life around it. 
this buffet approach that we have leaves us to form reality. It leaves us to pick and choose what is really true behind the scenes. What do we think has made the universe this way? How should we align ourselves in the universe to do what is right and what is good, what is best for us? But when the gospel comes to us as God's spoken and inerrant word declaring what is and what is not, then we do not have to make those decisions. We simply need to obey and listen and read and understand. It tells us what is true and what is false. It tells us what is right and what is wrong. It tells us what is good and what is bad. It tells us what is just and what is an abomination before God. And in this sense, it is telling us that God has acted in this manner or that manner, that he will judge in this manner or that manner. And he expects these things. And all of this is true and good and real and trustworthy. So many people want to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart God raised him from the dead. They confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, not realizing that when they say Jesus is Lord, that is not simply saying that he sits in heaven and wants to give you nice things. That means that he is a master and he is Lord and King over you. Subjects do not get to appeal to their king. He is not president of heaven, subject to a vote. He's king and therefore gets to declare what is true and right and good over all of the universe. And realize that we will fail in this. We are always going to fail. We're always going to fall short of what Christ has called us to. But then he is gracious and he is kind. And we recognize the truth of his word and we repent and we come back to him. In the end, it is about sin. Our lives are lived in our own passions and flesh in sin, and they will ruin us. And Jesus shows us a better way to live. So we listen to him. And so when Paul came and he preached, they recognized that this gospel is a word about God and this gospel is a word from God. Even if it's spoken through men, they realized it for what it was. And so Paul goes on to say, this is at the word that is at work in you believers. We would expect this. If it's truly the word of God, the very first thing we read in scriptures about the word of God is that it is creating all of the universe with a spoken word. He simply speaks a word and the universe pops into existence. Every physical law, every bit of matter, everything comes from the spoken being of God. But what's more, in Hebrews 1.3, we read that this Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and what's more, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. That is, that God didn't just speak the word into or the world into being, the universe into being, and then let it control itself. But it is so contingent upon him that if Jesus doesn't uphold it at every moment of every second of every day, that it would disintegrate into nothingness. That everything that has happened, that will happen, the state and the nature of the world, every wrinkle on your head and every hair that has fallen out is because Jesus Christ is upholding it, or in the case of hair, not upholding it. Even later in Hebrews 4.12, we read that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
The word of God is active and it works in people. And so Paul says, listen, if you accepted it as a word about God and as a word from God, then it makes perfectly good sense that that word is working in you. The question is, what is the work doing? The beginning of verse 14 tells us what that work is. Paul is giving us an explanation in verse 14. The word for at the beginning of that signals many things possibly, but here it signals an explanation. How is the gospel, how is the word of God at work in the believers? He says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. How did they become imitators of these churches? Again, 1 Thessalonians written maybe a couple of months after Paul left so we've got five, six months from the moment the gospel is mentioned there to the moment that Paul is writing this letter. And he says, you already have become imitators of those churches. It's unlikely that they could have sent, it's not unlikely, it's, it's not a logical impossibility, but it's pretty near impossible that they could have sent somebody to see those churches and said, hey, we want to know, how is Judea handling this? So let's send some people, let's go see and have them come back and then we'll start to model ourselves after it. And Paul doesn't leave for us to guess. He says, this is how you've modeled yourselves. You suffered the same things, in verse 14, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The sufferings are parallel. The Jewish believers in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews, just as the Gentile believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonica suffered at the hands of the Gentiles. That they suffered from their own countrymen for their belief in Christ. And so because of that, they suffered just like the Jews in Judea did who believed in Jesus Christ. Notice he makes a very strong point that it is the churches of God in Christ Jesus, not just the Jewish people, but it is the churches, those who have believed in Christ Jesus. You suffered at the hands of your countrymen just as they suffered at the hands of their countrymen. They persisted in belief, even amidst persecution. So did the Thessalonians. How did they do that? How did the church in Judea put up with all the persecution that was around them? We get a very, very good, if not full story, and it's not a full story, but we get a good hint at this in the book of Acts. In Acts 4, 19 and 20, Peter and John have been arrested and are taken before the Jewish leadership. And they are told that they must stop proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John in those verses answer those leaders and say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Said in a rather almost condescending way, why don't you choose, friends, whether we should follow you or God? Do you want to put yourself in the place of God? Because what we have they said, we consider as being nothing less than the word of God. As much as you, as the leadership, are sitting there talking to us and telling us what we ought to do, you are commanding that we not speak anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. We have been commanded by God himself to do that very thing. So what we have are two choices. We either obey God or we obey you, but we are not, we are not going to not obey the very word of God. It was the belief that they had received no less than the word of God. In Acts 5, the same thing happens. They go out, they're bold, they continue proclaiming the name. And this time they bring them up again before the council. And Peter and the apostles answer. 
We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of God. They believe that what they've received is the word of God. They believe that their obedience is to the word of God. God has spoken and they must act. Just as the Thessalonians, in hearing the gospel, knew that it wasn't something to pick and choose and to to decide whether they want this aspect of it or that aspect of it, but they knew that what they were hearing was the word of God. They understood, in Judea, what the Thessalonians understood, that what they were given was the word of God. Persecution that arose there tried to treat this entire Jesus the Christ thing and the Jesus the Christ preaching and and the idea that this Jesus was the Messiah that they long waited for is nothing but a man-made doctrine the entire time in the book of Acts. They treat it as nothing but men who might possibly be right. The church didn't act that way. They treated it as a word of God which they had to obey. What was the outcome of this? The end of Acts chapter 4. They prayed... And the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. At the end of Acts chapter 5, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Their belief that what they had received was the word of God emboldened their witness to do exactly what God had said. And it must work this way. If this is God speaking, then there's nothing else to do but to obey it. It, it, is the, the high, it is so foolish as to be unfathomable to think that you actually believe that this is the word of God and that you're not going to do the things that it says. Just as the early church made it seem like we have no choice in the matter. We must obey what God has called us to do. Friends, how you think about God's word and what you think about God's word is one of the greatest predictors, if not the greatest predictor, as to, from a human standpoint, as to whether or not you will persevere in the Christian faith throughout this life. There is almost nothing else that will be as good of a predictor. And I'm not saying that you simply say that it's the word of God, but do you treat it like the word of God? It is possible that someone can rightly understand the gospel, that they can think all of the right things about Jesus Christ, they can have all of their doctrines in place, and they can, they can say all of the right things about the Trinity and about Christology and about salvation. They know justification by faith, not just as a doctrine, but as a reality in their life. They can believe all of that, and they can also doubt the inerrancy of Scripture. They can look at Paul, and they can think that Paul just really nails it, but it's really just Paul. It's not the Holy Spirit working through Paul. The words of this are just words of men, but the words of these men might always be right. It's possible that that can happen. Logically speaking, unicorns are also possible, and I think that they're just as likely. Eventually, friends, you're going to be pressured and you're going to be moved in such ways that if you don't believe that this is the word of God, you will fall. Maybe by inches, maybe by feet 
that you will fall. You see, persecution is always going to come. It's not just for the churches in Judea and the churches in Thessalonica. Persecution is going to come. Sometimes it falls like a hammer. Sometimes it is the alienation or the prison or the death that comes to believers in Muslim countries. For us, it's more like a stone in a, in a river. It slowly erodes you. It slowly wears you down. It slowly pushes and wears on you. Culture isn't a hammer. But it will try to shift you off your moorings in Jesus Christ. And it will always be trying to whittle you slowly and inexorably away from the faith that once and for all has been handed down to the saints. Whether it's buying into sort of a cheap pragmatism in this world, whether it's appealing to our greed, whether it's appealing to our lust, whether it's telling us that we are bigots or fascists for believing the things that we have believed for over 2,000 years. What is going to keep you from falling away in situations like that? What is going to keep you steady amidst that storm? Jesus says this, Everyone who hears these words of mine, that is Jesus, not me, everyone who hears these words of Jesus and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the storm came, it had a foundation and it could not be moved. But those who built their house on sand, those who don't trust in the words of Jesus, who don't build their lives on the words of Jesus, those suffer great destruction. Many of us will think that this is God's word. And they will say, yes, I'll give a hearty amen to the things that I've said so far. But let me tell you what the real test of this is. The real test of whether you believe that it is the word of God is not the parts of scripture that you give a hearty amen to. It's the parts of scripture that you read and you want to say no. It is your disagreement with the word of God. And then realizing that you must be wrong. That is the test as to whether or not you truly believe that this is the word of God. You can say amen to all the things that you read and you can think that you are fine. But so long as you're blowing off those things that you don't like, so long as the parts that don't fit with your scheme of the world aren't taken seriously, you blow past them when you read them in the prophets. You blow past it when you hear Jesus speak of it. You blow it off. You don't give credence to people who talk about that passage in ways that make you uncomfortable simply because it makes you uncomfortable. Then you are not treating this as the word of God. If the word is only about you, how is it that you will ever suffer? If the gospel centers around you and it is only for what is good according to you, if it is only for what you think is best for you, how will you ever suffer like these Thessalonians suffered? If the gospel is just blessing poured out upon you, as you might find blessing, as you think of blessing, how are you ever going to handle the difficult things in life? When it's only about you, you're always a hair's breadth away from moving from the word giving you what is good to thinking that the word has to give you what you want. If the word is simply for men, why would you suffer? Why would you suffer because Paul was wrong? Why would you suffer because Jonah was an idiot? And he got a lot of stuff right, you might think, but maybe he was wrong in that. If it's just the word of men, why would you suffer for what word of men says? Why would you suffer for something that, 
that could possibly be wrong. Friends, you will only go through suffering like the Thessalonians did. You will only go through the sufferings, even lighter sufferings in this world because you believe that this is the word of God. This is exactly what kept the Thessalonians as people in Christ. Both the Thessalonians and the Judean churches believed. They maintained their faith. They persevered in this life to be formed into the image of Christ because they believed that the gospel and the words that were spoken to them were God's words. It was a word about God and it was a word from God. That brings us to verses 15 and 16 and a warning that is given to us. Now, in the history of the church, these types of verses, specifically these verses, but other verses have been used in this way as well, including things that we're going to talk about from the book of Acts and from Matthew. These things have been used to propagate the idea of anti-Semitism within the church, whether that was from John Chrysostom or Martin Luther, whether it is from weak-kneed pastors in Nazi Germany during World War II. These types of things have been used to make comments and suggestions about Jewish people that are just not true. They are hard verses. They are so difficult that many scholars after World War II started to advance ideas that these were actually just interpolations People somewhere along the line just kind of threw this into 1 Thessalonians. We don't know when it happened, but it must have been really early. And because it threw, threw it in, and we, we don't really want to accept it as, as Paul's word. It's not the word of God. It's, it's sort of a textual issue. They've got to be wrong. There's no indication that that has ever happened. We have absolutely no texts that do any of that. This is God's word. And you get the sense that these scholars are embarrassed by these words. We ought not be embarrassed by them. But at the same time, we have to be rightly honoring this word, not simply by saying that it says what it says and going on with life, but by rightly understanding what it says. So I'm going to give you a couple of reasons to, a couple of things to help us understand these words correctly. These are hard words against Jewish people, hard words of wrath, Hard words of desired wrath. You, you get the sense that Paul wants the wrath of God to fall upon these people. The first thing I would tell you is that the Gentiles are judged harshly as well. Paul is not just coming down on the Jews. Even within this passage, we've already talked about the fact that Jews and Gentiles who are believers, who persecute the church of God, are placed sort of in parallel columns. That just as the Jews treated the believers in Judea, so the Gentiles treated the believers in Thessalonica. Paul doesn't view them as like two different groups. Paul doesn't think of them as being different. Now, he does focus more on Jews here for a reason that we're going to come back to. But make sure that you understand that Paul sees unbelievers who are Gentile and persecute in the exact same light. If you don't believe me, you can flip over one book to 2 Thessalonians that Paul wrote couple of months after this one, where he says this about those Gentiles who persecute the Thessalonians. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So as much wrath might be falling on Jewish unbelief, 
just as much as falling on Gentile unbelief, especially on those who persecute the church. It is clear that Jewish people viewed the world in two lenses. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, but Paul doesn't view things like that anymore. In the book of Ephesians, he talks about how the dividing wall of hostility has been taken down, and that because it's taken down, there's no longer, as he might say in the book of Galatians, there's no Jew and there's no Gentile. It doesn't mean that Paul doesn't view the world as two sets of people, but that dividing line of ethnicity isn't there anymore. His dividing line is believer and unbeliever. And ironically, when he says that the dividing wall of hostility has come down, what he means is that Jews and Gentiles can live together in harmony in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ, working for the same ministry, the same goal, the same Lord, in the same spirit. The ironic thing about that is what we find through the book of Acts is that the gospel of Christ not only unites believers, Jew and Gentile, but it also unites unbelievers, Jew and Gentile, in persecuting the church. Both fall under the wrath of God. Second, Paul is not, in my opinion, speaking of all Jews. The ESV does not help us here. There is a comma at the end of verse 14. That comma makes all the difference in the world. When you put a comma at the end of that particular verse, what you are reading is a description of all Jews. So it says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, comma, new thought. What did the Jews do? Oh, this is what the Jews did. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. However, there's no reason that that comma actually needs to be there. And there's good reasons, which we're not going to go into because it's boring grammatical stuff, but there's good reasons why that comma shouldn't be there. First of all, I would like to make you make it very well known that no comma, period, or any of that has ever been found in Greek writings of the earliest centuries. They were all written in upper, uppercase letters. There were no diacritical marks. There's no periods, semicolons, apostrophes, none of that. There weren't even spaces in between the words. There was just letter, 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 letter. So this is an editorial thing that has been added in. But when you take it out, you read that it's not an unrestricted view of the Jews, but it's restricting who the Jews are. Which Jews are you talking about, Paul? For you suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind and killed the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets. That is, he's not calling out all Jews, but he's calling out specifically those who have stood against the gospel from the very beginning and have always stood. There's sort of this... This line, even as God has kept a remnant of believers through the Old Testament, there has always been a remnant of unbelief that has run through Israel. This is what Paul is remarking on here. This obviously makes sense because not all Jews fall under the condemnation that he's listing here. He just mentioned the church in Judea. You know what that church is filled with? Jews. You know what the apostles are. Now, true, Barnabas maybe might not be. There could be a couple of Gentile apostles, but the vast majority of them, Jews. Paul, Jew. So Paul is not an anti-Semite. He's not calling out the Jews here for destruction, but he is saying that those people who have 
throughout the Jewish history not listen to the word of God, who have done the very thing that you did, deserve destruction because they have always stood against the word of God. Listen to how the New Testament categorizes these people. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, goes through a history of the temple and of the people's reaction to the word of God coming to them. He goes from Moses all the way down, and he ends that in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, saying these words, which got him stoned. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Say, that sounds a lot, by the way, like what Paul was saying here. Interestingly enough, Paul was holding the coats of the people who would eventually stone Stephen, so he heard exactly what Stephen was saying here in the book of Acts. Stephen goes on to say, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In other words, the same people who would stone Stephen because he is speaking the truth of God to them are the same people who heard the word of God in the first place and denied it. They didn't listen to it. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Again, Echoing Jesus, Paul says almost exactly the same thing. Always to fill up the measure of their sins. Jesus says, you fill up the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, hard to read that as anything but Paul from town to town. They, they literally, in the book of Acts, just got done following Paul from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say, all these things will come upon this generation. Again, the painful point is, that the Jewish people have a remnant, a large, important part of the Jewish people have always rejected the word of God. They've always rejected it. That's what Paul is getting at. Why did they murder the prophets? They murdered the prophets because the prophets came and spoke words to them that they frankly didn't like. If you were in our reading plan, you're reading through Jeremiah now, you realize that this was in Jeremiah's entire ministry his entire ministry was telling people things that they didn't like. Which, by the way, is the ministry of almost every single prophet in Scripture. Going before the people of Israel and telling them things that they didn't like as the word of God and watching them get rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected. The Jews fall away because they do not accept God's word as God's word. So they butcher God's people. They stand up to God's people. They seek to strike down God's people. And what's more, they even want to restrict God's people so that they can't share salvation with the wider world, which has no impact on them whatsoever. 
And you need to understand that the point isn't that Jews in general, or even these Jews, are wretched, sinister, or morally infested scum. Rather, it's exactly the opposite. That the Jews represent God giving them the best. The Jews are the best of all of us. Listen, Paul expresses incredible love for Jewish people. In Romans 9, he asks, he says that I I have anguish in my heart over the lostness of of my fellow Jews. And I would be cut cut off from Christ if, if it might save them. And Paul knows that that would never happen, that his death would never atone for their sins. And if Jesus doesn't call them home, then there's nothing that he can do. Paul, in going through the book of Romans, makes it clear that it is faith that saves you. And his question, halfway through the book of Romans, in Romans 3, that surfaces again in Romans 9, is this. What is the benefit of being a Jew? If it doesn't matter, if if Gentiles are now allowed in, what's the benefit of being a Jew? And he lists these things. Listen to all these things. He says, they receive the oracles of God. They're in the bloodline of Israel. They are natural recipients of adoption. They've received glory, covenants, the law. They've received the right worship of God. They've received the promises. He says the patriarchs belong to them. And Jesus Christ came in their bloodline. He says they have tons of benefits. And that's the point. If the Jewish people with all those benefits and rejecting the word of God are cut off from God and the wrath of God is due to them after they have fallen, the very chosen people of God from whose lineage came the Christ who is blessed above all, amen. If they don't hold on to the word of God, if they fall and they have wrath come upon them, what do you think will happen to you? Paul's not being anti-Semitic. He's being pro-Thessalonian. He's looking at these believers and saying, what you have done, you must maintain. You believe that the word that has come to you is the word of God. You must hold on to that. Because the second that you let go, the world will form you and change you. The world will make you angry and bitter and filled with wrath. You must hold on to these things. So let us believe what the word tells us. That God is who he says he is in his word. That truth is what he says it is in his word. That we are who it says we are in his word. Let us live in light of those truths. Let us hold always onto the gospel as a word about God and as a word from God. Let us pray. God, you have spoken to us. This very same word has formed the stars and the sky and the land below us. It upholds your creation at every second and changes the hearts of the people to love you. Let us not reject such a wonderful word. Yet we are prone to, we are sinners, and your word is righteous. We are lovers of our own desires and lusts, which your word often rejects. We often see in your word only that which we want to see, and we are blind even as we read. God, let us not be so. Give us eyes to see afresh the greatness of your word, as in your kindness you show us your glory. Let us be changed by such glory, filled with hope and love and boldness for your kingdom 
and for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.